Hi there, and welcome to Power Play tonight, notwithstanding pushback. What they're doing is suspending fundamental rights and freedoms and preventing the courts from even being able to weigh in on that. The Prime Minister takes a stand against the controversial constitutional loophole known as the notwithstanding clause. Is he teeing up a fight with the provinces? We are live at the federal cabinet retreat to find out in moments. Then, as that federal cabinet huddles in vote-rich Ontario, how are the prime minister and his ministers preparing to counter Joe Biden's game-changing Inflation Reduction Act? Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne will join me live coming up. Plus, tragedy in California, where police have confirmed an 11th person has died as a result of Saturday night's mass shooting. The latest on that investigation from Monterey Park is ahead. But first. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Hamilton, Ontario, for a three-day cabinet retreat aimed at, according to the feds, looking at ways to make life more affordable and, quote, seize new opportunities for Canadian workers and businesses. On that note, just ahead of meeting with his ministers, Trudeau made an announcement about quantum computers and the innovation economy of the future. Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne was alongside him, and he's here with us now from Hamilton. Hi, Minister Champagne. Good to have you with us this evening. Well, thank you very much for having me. As you said, we had a big day on quantum, and we just drove and be on time. So great to be with you, Vashi, and, and congratulations for your neural knot, CDV. You're very kind. Thank you very much, Minister. Look, I have a lot of questions about the economy Here of the future go. and a whole a whole host of things. But but first, I have to ask you about uh, a little disagreement between your boss, the Prime Minister, and the Premier of your home province in Quebec. Uh, over the weekend, the Prime Minister, and, and he reiterated these comments this morning, made some comments on the notwithstanding clause, essentially that provinces should not be preemptively using it. And the Premier of Quebec said that those comments, the fact that your government is looking at perhaps involving the Supreme Court in this, amounts to a frontal assault on the people of Quebec and on democracy. Does the Premier have a point, Minister? Well, I would say I think what the Prime Minister was expressing is also the view of a number of Canadians. Um, you know, the preemptive use of the non-withstanding clause, as we said, uh, it is troublesome in many ways. I, I don't think the uh, when the Constitution was drafted, uh, that really uh, this was in mind, that the use of that clause uh, was really for really, really exceptional circumstances. And I think as a lawyer, I must say, uh, the preemptive use of it is creating a number of questions that I think will have to be answered and eventually resolved. I think in a free and democratic society, when you're suspending uh, rights, uh, you have to go to the public, you have to go to the population, and you have to explain yourselves why you would want to do that. And I think that's why in, at the time when this was put there, uh, there was a set of discussions around that. And I think uh, Canadians would largely agree that this needs to be used in very exceptional circumstances. And I think the fact that, you know, uh, some would consider that you can use that preemptively uh, raise a number of questions. What exactly, though, is your government looking to do to counter the preemptive use? Because right now the, the Prime Minister is saying in principle at this point, and, and I should point out your government was not saying this three or four years ago, but in principle you're against the preemptive use. So what exactly would you do to counter it? Are you going to reopen the Constitution? 
Well, I think the prime minister will, you know, spoke on this issue. I think eventually, um, you know, the court will have to decide uh, whether that's the appropriate way that the notwithstanding clause should be used in our country. Uh, because, like I said, uh, as a lawyer, it brings a number of, of issues. I don't think at the time, that's certainly my feeling uh, as a Canadian, that at the time, um, you know, those who drafted the clause really had uh, this in mind that somehow this clause could be used pre preemptively. I think at the time uh, this was put there as a safeguard and said, you know, if, if a court was to find a, a law uh, to be against uh, fundamental rights, that then uh, there could be, uh, that clause could be invoked. But I think the preemptive uh, uh, invoking of that clause is something new uh, in, in our legal system, I would say, in Canada. And I think that's something that will need to be looked at eventually by the court. Just one final question on this before I move on to the economy. And I take your point on that and, and the preemptive use specifically. But, but again, I have to kind of ask, from a political sure. perspective, why, why is your government speaking out about this now? Uh, compared to, I remember covering the 2019 election on Bill 21, not just your party, not just the Liberals, no party wanted to talk about any kind of intervention, any kind of discussion about the use of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, it's taken years to get to this point where it appears that your government thinks it's politically salient to do. Why, why now and, and why did well, you I don't. Let me just challenge. I don't think it has anything to be about being politically or, or there's no calculus on that. It's just that things have changed. I think we've seen governments... Uh, uh, invoking the notwithstanding clause more often than we have ever seen in our nation history. So I think circumstances have changed, and that's why you see uh, the response of the prime minister on that. But I don't think it's anything political. It's just something that I think in a, in, in a state like Canada, in a country, we'll have to decide what is the proper use of the notwithstanding clause that is part of our constitution. And, and I think this is really what will have to be eventually, I would think, debated and probably decided by the court. Okay, Minister, let me move on to the economy, because the announcement that you made this morning, it was $40 million to help a company build and commercialize a special quantum computer. And, and during that announcement, I listened very carefully to the way in which both yourself and the Prime Minister uh, placed a high level of importance on kind of the innovation economy, the economy of the future. And it's in that vein I wanted to ask you, what is your assessment of the level of threat posed by the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, the, the level of the threat it poses to Canada's ability really to attract investment on that front, on the economy of the future? What I would say the Inflation Reduction Act is a big catalyst for more. So that's the good thing. I mean, you see that the level of investment in the United States is unprecedented towards the green economy. So when I've been in Washington, I've always said, behind the Inflation Reduction Act, what you find is, is resiliency. And my message to our American friends has always been, if you want to be more resilient, you need to work closely with Canada because we have what the economy of the 21st century needs. Uh, we have the talent, we have the resources, uh, we have the ecosystem, we have the renewable energy. And, and so for me, I, I see that as a catalyst for investment. At the same time, Vashi, uh, that means that as Canadians, we need to up our game because, yes, competition is, is a bit stronger. Uh, I would say we had our fair share of investments coming to Canada. You've seen LG Stellantis. Uh, you've seen GM and POSCO, and we have more to come. 
like I say, 2022 was the beginning. 2023, uh, you'll see more investments. But I think that I always say to my friends down in Washington, um, you know, we need to invest more together to build more together and sell more together to the rest of the world. And, and in that context, I think the IRA is a catalyst at the same time. That will require us to make sure that, you know, competitiveness is a number of things that we'll need to, to work hard uh, to make sure that we win some of these investments. Uh, but I would say so far, so good. Uh, we've, you know, you know, Bloomberg has ranked Canada second in the world when it comes to our battery ecosystem, just slightly behind China ahead of the United States. So I can tell you, I've never had as many phone calls from CEOs around the world who want to invest in Canada. At a time of a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability, Canada stands out in the world. But I do want to ask you more specifically about that, because even the announcements you alluded to, I remember covering them, it's Delantis, et cetera, they, they predate the implementation of, of the IRA in the United States, right? And when you say Canada will have to up its competitiveness, what I really want to know is, and maybe this comes in the budget, but can you be more specific about how Canada will do so? Are there plans, for example, maybe not to match subsidy for subsidy, but to in theory, match the, the set of subsidies, really, and the effect of the subsidies in the United States. Like, is there more coming beyond what came in the fall economic statement? Or are you and your government just hoping that the advantages we already have will carry us through? Well, we never win on the money. Let me say that, because there's always people who have more money to invest. The five things that really distinguish why you see investment in Canada, the first thing is talent. Uh, Canada is still a very, very attractive jurisdiction a magnet for talent, I would say. The second thing is the strength of our ecosystem, whether it's in the aviation field, uh, the automotive sector, AI, quantum, and cyber. The third thing is critical minerals, and I would say their proximity is everything. Proximity to resources, market, and assembly line. Fourth is renewable energy, uh, because I've been saying people are going to move from electric vehicle to green vehicle. And fifth, I would say, is really about access to market. So as we said in the fall economic statement, we will remain competitive. Uh, because for me, but is there this something, is about, pardon this me, sorry a, for the interruption, but, yeah. but is there more coming? That's, I understand the five things that you're laying out, but is there more coming? Well, we say we'll remain competitive. And like I said, Vashi, competitiveness is a number of things. We know that competition uh, is strong, not only from our partners down south, but also in Europe. I mean, you know, but what I would say to Canadians who are watching, this is a generational opportunity. Uh, that's why you've seen me so active to make sure I speak to CEOs and whether it's in Seoul, in Tokyo, in Germany, to make sure to make the case for Canada. Uh, not everyone in the world wakes up in the morning thinking about Canada. So we need to make the case. But I would say, Vashi, one thing is clear. Uh, when I was in Tokyo and I was talking, for example, to one of the of the largest uh, automaker probably in the world, or one of the biggest, he said that's a very attractive pitch because they understand that Canada has uh, what, what they need for the economy of the 21st century the critical minerals that are going to go in the battery and the critical minerals that are going to be used in the chips. So for me, uh, in semiconductors, so uh, when I go in Washington, whether it's the CHIPS Act or the Inflation Reduction Act, what I keep saying to them is that the underpinning uh, principle behind that is resiliency. And if you want to increase resiliency in the United States and North America, Canada needs to be part of the solution. Okay, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thanks for your time, Minister. appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne from Hamilton. Our front bench panel is standing by. They'll be here a little later this hour to talk about the cabinet retreat that Minister Champagne is at and the notwithstanding clause. Here this evening, Miriam Monsaf, Melanie Paradis, Kathleen Monk, and Emily Nicola.
First, though, let's head south of the border for an update on this weekend's mass shooting in Monterey Park, California. At least 11 people were killed at a dance hall during Lunar New Year celebrations there. Two victims in their 60s are now being identified, Lillian Lee and Mi Nan. Nan's family took to social media to pay tribute to her, saying she went to the dance studio for years. The suspect, 72-year-old Hukan Tran, reportedly frequented that dance hall. He died of a self-inflicted gun wound. CTV's Richard Madden is in Monterey Park, where a vigil is slated to be held later this evening. Hey, Richard, good to have you with us. What's the latest on the investigation? Yeah, the big question now that everyone's asking is motive. What led that 72-year-old man to open fire at that dance hall on Saturday night in the midst of the Lunar New Year uh, that has caused a lot of grief and a lot of shock in this very tight-knit community? Behind me, you can see a growing makeshift memorial to honour the victims of that deadly shooting. We know at least 11 victims lost their lives in that deadly attack, but it's unclear what led that gunman to cause such such havoc and such violence and the timeline is also quite shocking after uh, he went to the dance club here he went to the neighboring town and tried to uh, mimic that attack again but he was taken down uh, by patrons there he fled the scene that caused a citywide manhunt for the suspect which ended yesterday uh, when he fatally shot himself uh, after he was surrounded by SWAT team so the suspect is deceased but we know at least 11 victims have lost their lives 10 more are in hospital and investigators Investigators are trying to piece together what led to that deadly attack, but ultimately uh, the motive behind it. Yeah, motive, certainly the, the huge outstanding question. Uh, you mentioned yeah. the victims, uh, of course, numerous others, as you said as well, uh, wounded in all of this. What do we know about those victims? Well, this is another issue here, is that police have only identified two of the victims. So there's at least nine more victims uh, that who have not been named. Uh, I, we've been speaking to people all day here today at this memorial. One gentleman is quite worried. He was very emotional speaking to us, saying he might know another victim, but he has been unable to reach unable to reach her. Uh, the, the stunning, one stunning uh, fact from this horrific shooting is the age of not just the gunman, but the victims. Typically, mass shootings are conducted by a teenager, anywhere from 18 years old to early 30s. They post their angry manifesto online and they conduct that carnage. But in this case, the suspect is 72 years old. The victims range from 60 to 80. It's a significant change in age, uh, which clearly has baffled investigators what led to this. There are so, so many theories, including was it mental illness? Was it a revenge killing? The investigators believe that the suspect knew two of the victims, uh, but the other nine were killed in the crossfire at that deadly club shooting. So a lot of questions that remain unanswered. But ultimately, this is a very tight-knit community. They were celebrating the Lunar New Year, which is a very big holiday uh, for Asian Americans. And this city here is among the largest population of Asian Americans. You can see Lunar New Year banners and signs, celebrations everywhere. But of course, this has cast a chill on what was supposed to be a very joyous celebration. Instead, we are now at America's 33rd mass shooting of the year, and it's only January. Wow. Thanks, Richard. You bet. CTV's Richard Madden in Monterey Park for us tonight. Coming up this evening on Power Play, we'll turn back to that brewing brawl between the feds and Quebec. If Ottawa wants to fight the notwithstanding clause, can it and how? Former Justice Minister Peter McKay will be here to weigh in. We're back in just a moment.
I do not think any provinces should be proactively, preemptively using the notwithstanding clause. What they're doing is suspending fundamental rights and freedoms and preventing the courts from even being to, able to weigh in on that. As a government, we will always stand up for people's fundamental rights and freedoms. The Prime Minister there speaking out on a brewing fight with Quebec on the notwithstanding clause. He made those comments just ahead of a three-day cabinet retreat. The Prime Minister actually set to arrive at that retreat in just a few minutes' time. CTV News' Parliamentary Bureau Chief Joyce Napier is reporting on cabinet for us this week, and she is with us live now from Hamilton. Hey, Joyce, great to see you. First cabinet meeting of the year. What's on the agenda? What should we know? Oh, well, we should know that obviously what's on the agenda we know is cost of living, inflation, affordability, uh, all those things that are keeping many Canadians uh, awake at night. Um, so that is one issue. But, you know, there's one can ask oneself, what can the federal government do more than what it has already done? We know that there was dental uh, for children, rental, uh, rental uh, programs as well, uh, GST rebates. But what more uh, can the cabinet do? And that's definitely going to be on their agenda today. But really, the, one of the items that is at the way top of that agenda, Vashi, is health care. Um, you know, we're hearing daily of stories across the country of, 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 of delayed uh, surgeries, of people dying in uh, while they're waiting in the emergency room. We know that 12,000, there's a backlog of 12,000 children waiting for surgery across Ontario. So, you know, it clearly has become a political hot potato. I was talking to the intergovernmental affairs minister earlier who was saying, yes, this is definitely one of our priorities. But... Sadly, don't expect there to be a deal in the next couple of weeks. Uh, there will be for sure a deal, he says, by the time there will be a federal budget, the 2023 budget. And the provinces also are, are drawing their budgets now, are preparing their budgets. So it's a process that may take a couple of months before they really do get to a deal with the provinces, a long-term deal, he says, you know, maybe over 10 years, uh, something that, you know, could be more helpful for the provinces to be able to sort of organize their priorities and, and, and try to catch up on all those backlogs. So definitely health care, definitely affordability on the agenda. And as you said, the prime minister should be arriving anytime soon. Most of the ministers are already here. Yeah, that's interesting that, that uh, Minister LeBlanc said to you it could be longer than a few weeks because we had his provincial, I don't know, colleague, I don't know what to call him, but Premier Blaine Higgs from New Brunswick on the program this weekend who was saying, I do think it is a few weeks away. Uh, I don't think the feds are going to come to the table with $28 billion a year, but but we are very close. So uh, it, it, does it sound to you like Minister LeBlanc throwing a bit of cold water on that to temper expectations maybe? Probably. I mean, you know, politically, he has to be doing that. I mean, he is the man that does, you know, the face-to-faces with the uh, premiers. Right. Uh, and, and clearly, this is a very complex issue. This is not something that they can say, hey, we need a fix. We need a win, uh, which they do, by the way. Uh, we need a win, so why don't we do health care as a win? But it's not something that they can do that easily. We know it's a lot of money. We know it's over a long period of time. So we're talking seven, ten years even. And then the provinces have to come up with their priorities. Um, you know, there's going to be, you know, one-on-one -on -one negotiations as well with the provinces to see what their 
priorities are. So a complex issue to fix a problem that gets bigger, it seems, Bashi, every day. Uh, but today he told us, look, I mean, it's not going to be two weeks. It was clear. Uh, he said it exactly that way. It's not going to be two weeks. It may be a month or less. But he said by the time budgets are drawn, are written and, 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 and published, then there should be then a deal that will last over at least 10 years, he says. Okay, Joyce, I'm going to leave it there because I believe the Justice Minister has just stepped up to the microphone. We'll take a listen in live to Minister Lametti. Thanks. That's CTV's Parliamentary Bureau Chief, Joyce Napier. Let's listen in to Justice Minister David Lametti. J'avais déjà dit euh, à plusieurs reprises que si, Several. Uh, si uh, if, if le cas hack uh, allait à la Cour suprême, que nous irions uh, devant la Cour suprême, justement pour soulever des questions de la, la clause dérogatoire, entre autres. The notwithstanding clause, among others. Well, there, there's always uh, there's always a possibility of of formulating a question and sending it to the Supreme Court as, as a reference and asking the court to answer. In this case, whether the the notwithstanding clause uh, can be used in a preemptive fashion. Uh, that being said, there is a, a case currently in front of the Court of Appeal in Quebec, and uh, and we will let the Court of Appeal do its work. <laughs> Question inaudible. On a, on a pas dit, uh, we didn't say, we didn't say to remove the notwithstanding clause as a matter of how to use it. And there are lots people in Quebec, Quebecers, who, whose rights have been uh, affected and protected by the notwithstanding clause. It's a fundamental question. And many Quebecers, like myself, have concerns. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an issue not only in Quebec, but in Ontario as well. We, we hopefully will be in a position to announce soon, but I obviously won't negotiate in public. Uh, talking, talking. Talking, talking to parliamentary colleagues. So, well, we have uh, the beginning of parliament. Uh, beginning of the parliamentary session is is the following week, uh, and and we will uh, we will have something to announce when we have something to announce. We're at, we're in discussions. Before parliament comes back, we'll have an answer. I am not. I'm not specifying a date, David. Thank you. I am not specifying a date. Thank you. Merci. That is, that is Justice Minister uh, David Lametti speaking to reporters in Hamilton, Ontario, at the cabinet retreat there. A number of questions, as expected, on the issue you heard us discussing with Francois-Philippe Champagne off the top of this program, and that is the use of the notwithstanding clause. The prime minister over the weekend and this morning came out swinging against Quebec and other provinces who have uh, preemptively used the notwithstanding clause. Minister Lametti there surmising that it might even possibly be a reference case to the Supreme Court in the future. Up now at the microphone, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolit. Let's have a listen in to that. Um, because we know that more than ever, what is happening in the world is affecting Canadians at home. Uh, when 
Putin decides to invade Ukraine or when a uh, virus spreads around the world, uh, Canadians feel it. And obviously right now they're feeling it at the pump and when they do their groceries. So my job as foreign minister is to make sure that I work with other countries in the world to bring more stability, more cooperation, and also seize opportunities, particularly when it comes to create new jobs. So I'll say it in French and then... Donc, euh, ça me fait plaisir de vous voir so, ici. J'espère que vous avez eu de bonnes vacances. Je vous ai eu pendant le temps donc, mon boulot en tant que ministre so, my job as foreign affairs minister is to talk about priorities of Canadians. Never so much as have we've never seen over the last weeks or the last year that what happens in the world happens uh, impacts us here at home. When Putin in, invades Ukraine or a virus appears uh, throughout the world, that's when Canadians know that everything affects them. So my objective here is to work with my colleagues and allied countries to bring more stability, in the world, more cooperation, and seize various opportunities. So there you go. Yes, Madeleine. When the question of Ukraine arises, we know very well that uh, to come to a sustainable peace, we have to continue to train. It's the paradox we're in. That's the approach we're taking and our allies also. We recently sent 200 vehicles to Ukraine. Minister Nan mentioned it. We participated on anti-missile spending with the Americans, and there's still lots to do, and we'll do more. Canadians know that in order to get to lasting peace, we need to make sure that we continue to arm Ukraine. And when doing so, there's still a lot to do. And for sure, we will be doing more. That's what I can tell you right now. Did you ask to send I was in contact with my colleague Anand and many conversations with many German uh, government representatives. We must talk amongst allies about these tanks. But uh, you will get our confirmation that we will do more to support Ukraine. Like I said in French, I've been having conversations with my German counterpart. I've been also having conversations with many of our German counterparts. And we need to work amongst allies. This is what we're doing. And as mentioned before, we will continue to do more because more is needed to help Ukraine. Is there any sense that a breakthrough in those conversations could be imminent? As I said, we need to do more and we will be doing more. Thank you, Thank you so much. Merci. Foreign Affairs Minister uh, Melanie Jolie there fielding a number of questions on a big story for Ukraine, primarily that Ukraine over the last number of weeks has made their primary ask of their allies 
those Leopard 2 battle tanks. Those tanks are manufactured in Germany. Germany, therefore, has veto over whether or not countries can export them. And so far, Germany has not given the green light for uh, Ukrainian allies to do so. Canada is among those allies. We have 82 of those Leopard 2 tanks. Defense Minister Anita Anand over the weekend would not say, even if Germany gives the green light, will Canada start exporting some, at least some of those tanks to Ukraine? And you heard the same question posed to Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister, multiple times there. She repeated over and over again uh, that there are conversations among allies and that for sure we will be doing more for Ukraine. But she did not directly answer the substance of the question on whether or not Canada will be exporting tanks to Ukraine. Should uh, Germany end up giving that the green light. Stay tuned here on Power Play. We're going to continue tracking what happens in Hamilton. We are expecting the prime minister to arrive there and speak to reporters any moment. We'll bring that to you live. And the front bench is standing by to weigh in on what cabinet's priorities should be in 2023. Stay with us. More to come. Welcome back to Power Play on this Monday evening. Justin Trudeau versus Francois Legault. The prime minister says his government is considering going to the Supreme Court to limit the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause. Quebec's premier Francois Legault is firing back, though, accusing the prime minister of a, quote, frontal assault on democracy and Quebec. So are the feds picking a fight with Quebec? And if so, why? Let's ask our front bench panel. Joining me this evening, former liberal cabinet minister Miriam Monsef. She's now the CEO of Onward, former communications director to Erin O'Toole, Melanie Parody. She's now the president of Texture Communications. NDP strategist and Monk and Associates principal owner Kathleen Monk is here, as is columnist with Le Devoir, Emily Nicolas. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you. My, my apologies in advance. If the prime minister arrives at cabinet, which we're anticipating, I'll take that live, but we'll be around for the whole evening to kind of weigh in on what we hear. Uh, let's start with the notwithstanding, because it kind of overtook some of the other stuff happening at the cabinet retreat today. Emily, I want to start with you. How is the comments were originally made in La Presse over the weekend and then reiterated this morning by the prime minister. How is that being uh, perceived in Quebec from, from where you sit? Uh, the premier, uh, François Legault, was all up in arm, uh, actually already on Sunday when that, when that came out uh, in La Presse. And today, essentially, his read of the situation is that um, um, the use of the notwithstanding clause has been used uh, at the National Assembly in a way that's been quite consensual uh, by all parties represented there to essentially every five year reconduct uh, the or, or renew um, some provisions of the Bill 101, which is a core law in Quebec. And so he he uh, made allusions to that uh, and his comment. And obviously, the more uh, famous at this point in contemporary history use of Quebec, uh, the, the, the non-withstanding clause by Quebec has also been uh, Bill 21 and uh, Bill 96. So the bill on, on secularism and, and the, the newest iteration of language, um, the language bill as well. And so those two have been not consensual across all party line. And those are, are, are the two use of the non-withstanding clause that he also says, uh, the, François Legault is about Quebec identity and something that um, that has been disputed, being disputed, obviously, within Quebec. This is why uh, the case might actually go to the Supreme Court, is because there's people in Quebec who've, who've, uh, who've pushed back against this. But at the same time, there's a strong base for what François Legault is saying, and what he's saying is resonated as, uh, resonating as well with a lot of Quebecers. 
the question, Kathleen, I kept asking myself, and I, I posed it at one point to Minister Champagne, was like, why now? Because I remember covering Bill 21 in the 2019 For election sure. and no party would touch it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> like, no one then was saying, you know what we got to do? Send this to the Supreme Court, get a reference on whether or not this, uh, you know, the, the notwithstanding clause should never preemptively be used. But like something has shifted. What do you think it is? Politics. Okay. Politics, Valley. Yeah. Ding, ding, uh, ding. For sure. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. And, and why? Because Listen, uh, mapping out to the next election, there's a key a demographic in Quebec. It's an Anglophone demographic. It makes approximately 10% of the population. They're normally federal liberals. Um, and they populate, they, they've got this great concentration in Montreal, in the Gatineau area, and also in the eastern townships. And frankly, those are pockets of areas that liberals are trying to pick up and, and increase their seat count, right? And increase and, and hold and make sure that other parties don't ping them off. So I think this is less about a fight necessarily with Legault and more about a political fight and how he could be the defender of, um, you know, the, the, the charter and, and, and like something that actually normally a downtown Toronto crowd uh, would actually play to, but he is playing to in Quebec as well. We saw last November when Premier Ford came out with an with standing clause, there was a very quick reaction, and there was that a lot of talk. That wouldn't surprise me, right? Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of talk of this this weird word called disallowance, and this is basically when the federal government can come in and 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 basically uh, devalidate a law, make a, a law that a provincial party has passed is invalid and no longer. But will they? They haven't done that in Quebec precisely. Legault has been hands off. But why is he doing this now? Why is he coming out and saying this to the press? Uh, and why did uh, Premier Legault react so strongly over the weekend? Because I think it is a fight for those progressives in um, in Montreal, in the, con the concentrated Anglos, uh, that, that they would like to pick up and, and secure uh, secure even more so going forward. I should make sure also to explain for our viewers, Bill 21 was, of course, I mean, that's how it's commonly known, but it, it basically was around uh, disallowing the use of religious symbols for people in positions of authority. And then Bill 96 is a more recent introduction that became law around uh, languages, basically. Mm -hmm. um, Melanie, your thoughts on the why now? question. Well, I mean, I think that that's really the million dollar question of the hour is this kind of came out of the blue. But polling has been really bad for the liberals all across the country. And I would argue that it's not just this isn't just a vote getter in Quebec. They're interested in, in maintaining their support, growing their support in the GTA, in Vancouver, in, with, with ethnic minority groups in particular. And they know that if they push on Bill 21, they can get more people to vote for them in those areas. The challenge is they have to see, and the reason why I think this is a trial balloon, is they have to see if this hurts them uh, too much with other people who support them in Quebec. So I think they're just floating this out there. It's a trial balloon. They're going to not really do anything until they see polling results come back on it. They're going to have us chattering class talking about it <laughs> and see what kind of comes of it. Mm -hmm. And then they'll, they'll know whether they can afford to push further and actually uh, challenge Bill 21 more directly. If I remember back to 2019 and, and back to when Bill 21 was introduced, uh, Miriam, there was a lot of opposition to it and a lot of concern around it outside of Quebec. But obviously, as I pointed out, it wasn't just the Liberals then, it was all parties. I remember interviewing uh, Mr. Singh, I remember uh, Mr. Scheer at the time, like nobody really wanted to wade in mm -hmm. as specifically as the past few months, and especially since the Ford government made its announcement a few months ago around QP. Uh, your perspective on what might have evolved? Or is it just politics? I know Mr. Champagne re rejected the premise of my question, but <laughs> but your thoughts on that? I think it's beyond politics, Fashi. I 
40 years since the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada. You can expect that the Liberal Party, the governing party, is going to stand strongly in defense of it, is, you know, very proud to be the party of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And we can expect this prime minister to stand strongly in defense of fundamental rights. And so I think 40 years has something to do with it. Uh, and certainly, uh, while I'm not sure if Canadians are ready for a big constitutional conversation about the Charter and ways to update it, uh, if my experience last fall in my master's class at Trent University taught me anything, in light of Mr. Ford's preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause, there was a passionate, thoughtful conversation amongst professors, amongst students, grad students particularly, about, wait a minute, let's go back to 40 plus years ago. How was the charter introduced? Does it actually still protect us? Are there ways to update it? What is this notwithstanding clause? So I think it's an important time to have this conversation. And even if Canadians aren't really interested in what is likely to be a divisive conversation around constitutional debate, there's a lot of interest and a lot of strong opinions about Canadians' rights. The Charter is an important part of Canadian identity. And I'm glad to have this conversation uh, amongst peers, but also to have a conversation nationally. Emily, I'll, I'll just uh, give you the last word here. I'm wondering, uh, again, from like a political point of view, though, why you think, yeah. for example, Premier Legault reacted the way he, he, he did over the weekend. Like, what's, what's in it for him in that reaction? Yeah, so I, I think to go back to the question of why now, one thing we're forgetting about yeah. is that, so again, those laws, those two laws, Bill 96, Bill 21, are being challenged in front of the court. So there is bound to be uh, some some uh, some judge making a decision, uh, which would then lead to, to potentially this going all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, so if uh, if the timing is is happening now, it's probably because those are are due to 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 arrive in the spring, and so it's preemptive essentially trial balloon to have a sense of what would be their reaction uh, if that's what would they would be saying. Uh, the second thing I need to say is that it's also not the first time that you hear that kind of stuff. It's the first time maybe you hear directly from the prime minister, but David Lamedy has, has, has said before yeah, that, you know, although they're yeah. not willing to intervene as, um, as the lead, essentially to lead a, a court challenge, that they would be uh, willing to intervene in a court challenge, uh, that the federal government should have a say in a court challenge. So in a way, they, they're kind of reiterating something that they're already said. It's just that in the context of a prime minister giving you an interview to La Presse during a weekend yeah. uh, from profile, it's just creating yeah. a different kind of political reaction now. And François Legault, obviously, is just being François Legault, depending his agenda, and, and uh, it's playing well <laughs> with his base, so there's no reason why he would do any uh, otherwise. Yeah, I just quickly would add, I was listening to Mr. Minister Lametti rather uh, talk to reporters a few minutes ago, and yeah. he was saying, uh, kind of speculating on, oh, what are our options? Because reporters keep asking, well, if you're yeah. saying you're willing to look at stuff, what are the options? And he did say one of the options is to send a reference case to the Supreme Court, which is a bit more than mm -hmm. he said originally mm -hmm. around Bill 96, but you're absolutely right. He had he has said for a few months now that uh, the federal government was interested mm -hmm. in the outcome of that. Okay, I'm going to take a quick commercial break here on Power Play tonight. On the other end of that break, though, the, the um, uh, front bench is sticking around. We are going to talk about uh, the cabinet retreat as a whole and the objectives of cabinet in 2023. Back in just a moment here on Power Play tonight.
Welcome back to Power Play. Federal ministers, cabinet ministers have descended on Hamilton, Ontario for a retreat. What should the liberal strategy be going into 2023? Is it to fend off Pierre Polyev's rise in the polls to keep their supply and confidence partners, the NDP, happy? or to get the premiers on side to push a health care deal across the finish line, or all of the above. Let's bring in the front, front bench to find out. We have Miriam Monsef, Melanie Parody, Kathleen Monk, and Emily Nicola with us this evening. Uh, Miriam, I'm, I'm going to start with you because I think you're the only one here who's actually been to one of these things before. <laughs> um, from, from where you sit, it, you know, it, it, pull back the curtain for us a little bit. What goes on and, and what do you anticipate they'll come out of this uh, kind of direction-wise? Well, the cabinet retreats have been a really effective use of time. The agenda's packed. There's a lot of work that goes into them ahead of time. There's a lot of interdepartmental conversations. Uh, and, you know, cabinet ministers show up as well as their chiefs of staff ready to take in a lot, to share a lot. But the goal is priorities. And if I were giving uh, the government advice, that advice would be framed around three P's. The first would be on public policy and how to prioritize key issues for the team to focus on around affordability, around healthcare that make life easier for Canadians and what structures and what processes are working, what's slowing things down or in the way. And COVID, there's a lot of lessons to learn from the pandemic response. We were, you know, the government was able to respond very quickly. Let's take some of those lessons and apply it to this next chapter of governance in Canada during a pandemic. The second would be around politics. And you certainly refer to it uh, both around, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the pact with, with the NDP as well as uh, the new conservative leader. What this prime minister has done well is speak to people's better angels. And what we know is that it's really crucial to bring down the temperature. It's been an exhausting three years for Canadians. And so many Canadians would say, and they're right to say, that they have been through hell. And so what can the government do to show that it's listening, to be in tune with the mood, but also to show the contrast with a conservative leader who's shown so far to want to lead Canada down a reckless and uh, an irresponsible path. And then the third piece, which is why anybody gets into politics, it's the people. How are people feeling right now? People are grieving. If they haven't lost loved ones, they've lost jobs, they've lost a certain way of life, they have lost opportunities to celebrate happy occasions. People are burnt out and we're having a conversation about burnout in the wake of the Prime Minister from New Zealand. Right. And people are anxious, they've had to adapt to all sorts of change, sometimes beyond their capacity. So what can the government do to show that it's listening? to show that it cares. I think focusing on healthcare and affordability will help Canadians relax a little bit. But also today, you know, I walked into a shop with IT challenges all bundled up and masked up and very pregnant. And this young man, Cole, recognized me. And he didn't want to talk to me about politics or public policy. He wanted to talk about what it's like to be a human in politics. And if the government focuses on what they do best, which is connecting with people on a human to human level, 
and focus on those priorities that make life easier for an otherwise anxious population, I think they're headed down the right path. Uh, just to jump off, I'm going to circle back because we're kind of talking politics here all the time to the second area that you jumped off of. And, and Melanie, I'll get you to weigh in. I'm not sure a lot of Canadians watching would be so, so sure any party is specifically hell-bent on bringing down the temperature, and especially against the context or the backdrop of the possibility of an election. I, m my guess would be that that might not happen. I don't know your thoughts. Um, so I agree that, that that's probably not going to happen. But if uh, Miriam provided three Ps, I'm going to give three Bs. Uh, of what I think that they should be focusing on. Okay, there's um, big ideas, budget, and Biden. So let me explain those. First is this this government is completely adrift. There, there have been no big ideas, nothing particularly exciting happening. Um, they, we need, we, we clearly need change in this country. Um, our healthcare system is in crisis. It needs to be fixed desperately. Um, Canadians are super concerned about the cost of living. Have you seen your natural gas bill or your home heating bill this month? It's wild. Don't look at it. I mean, you have to look at it so you can pay it, but it's very depressing. Uh, the cost of food, the, the cost of, of, of gas for your car, like prices just keep going up. People are having a very hard time with that. Um, so we need big ideas to address very real problems that are affecting everyday Canadians. The second thing is the budget is coming up. Probably in like five or six weeks, we're going to have a federal budget um, somewhere in there. And we need to see those big ideas on paper and have a budget to back them up. What is this going to cost to keep our, our country on track in what is likely going to be a very bad year? We're, it sounds like we're going to be having a recession. Um, and then finally, Biden. So President Biden is coming to Canada for his official visit in March. We don't know the exact date yet. But that's coming up. This government really needs to show some momentum before that happens. It's a really important political moment for the government. And if they're going to take advantage of it, they need to get their act together. So my hope for the country really is that this liberal cabinet meeting um, generates some really good brainstorming so that they can try to get this country back on track. In more practical terms, uh, if I can jump off of that, Kathleen, mm -hmm. and unfortunately we're running out of time, I want to make sure I get both you and Emily in. Yeah. If, you, if you're looking ahead to like the next marker, is it the budget? Is that kind of what you're planning from here to then too? Or are you looking beyond that at the possibility, and we've talked about this before, of an election, mm -hmm. the, the, the chances that that happens, and how do you plan against that? Short-term, medium-term, long-term right. goals. Short-term, this next quarter, it's all going to be about Biden budget and getting that health care uh, care deal excuse me, done. Uh -huh. um, that's got to be and there, there is a lot of lead up to that Biden visit. I, I agree with Melanie on that. And, and I think the budget will point that way as a reaction to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, exactly what you were talking to Minister Champagne about. But then they have to think about the, the middle term and, and longer term, which is the election. And, and, and actually, I'll just wrap up here by saying the polling numbers, which show, you know, a conservative spike and a little bit of a liberal slump, um, is it, probably because Canadians are, are happy with people working together. They actually like the minor, minority parliament. They, they don't want to give anybody a, a clear runway or a clear path right now. So they have to do the planning. The Liberals have kind of made some clear uh, marching orders for their, their MPs. You know, they have to get a certain amount of money in by the end of March 31st to 2023, um, you know, in terms of nominating some of their, their incumbents. They're doing that work, as are other parties as well. And so that's the election work that they're going to be doing. And, and that will touch on for sure in Cabinet. These next few days, I kind of love the context of um, or the the discussion around Emily that Canadians aren't willing to really give anybody the like mm -hmm. you've got this at this point mm -hmm. that we're okay with the idea 
of a minority government? Do you have that sense? And how do you think the, the politics discussion goes at this retreat? Um, I mean, I think that's the one lesson that a lot of people got from the last federal election, where essentially it was a lot of ado about nothing. At least that's how that's how a lot of people felt about it when you saw how essentially the same parliament was reelected um, a, a, a second time. Uh, that that being said, um, it doesn't mean that it, it makes it co cozy or easy for for the sitting government to be in. That Kenyans are happy with the leadership that they have, just for the for for. For the very reason that Kenyans are really, or actually any people, is really happy when the economy is not the economy is not doing well. So, if people are are hurting, they're going to blame it on the people in charge. And uh, regardless of who is in charge, I think that person would be uh, not doing so well um, in terms of approval. And and that that being said, I think the, this this government is uh, could could be the, could be doing. Uh, uh, a lot, a lot worse. The challenge for them ahead, and I think probably what they're scratching their head about during the, the this this meeting is 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 trying to find ways to look like they're doing something concrete that's going to make a difference in people's lives right now. That's tangible. There's been a lot of work, for example, that's been done to con con to counter the the, infl the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. That's about you know long-term investment in industry and a lot of. Uh, yeah. Which is very important work, but a lot of just ordinary citizens don't see that work, right? If they're struggling to mm -hmm. pay for groceries, that's that goes way above their heads. And so, and and when it comes to the concrete work that needs to okay. be done that directly reaches people, there's been a lot of advice right. against that actually being able to contribute to inflation. So that's the cycle that they've been in, and it's right. very hard for them to get out of it. Okay. I apologize. I just have a minute left, so i got to wrap it. Thanks very much yes. to our front bench, Kathleen Monk, Miriam Monsef, Emily Nicola, and Melanie Paradis. Today's takeaway, have a listen to Francois-Philippe Champagne. Let me just challenge. I don't think it has anything to be about being politically or, or there's no calculus on that. It's just that things have changed. I think we've seen governments uh, uh, invoking the notwithstanding clause more often than we have ever seen in our nation history. So I think circumstances have changed. So Francois-Philippe Champagne on this program denying there's anything political behind the fact that the prime minister came out swinging against the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause. Premier Francois Legault swung back. He said it's a frontal attack on democracy. We'll continue tracking reaction to that and bring it to you throughout the evening. That does it for us tonight on Power Play. I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great night.